0: Welcome to New Matter, the SLAS podcast where we interview life science luminaries. Today, we welcome the 2019 SLAS Graduate Education Fellow, Corrine Nemmer, to tell us what she has been up to since she completed her fellowship. Welcome, Corrine.
1: Hi, Hannah. Thank you for having me. That's our pleasure.
0: So Karine, for those who may have not heard last episode when you were on the podcast, can you describe for us what was your proposed research that won you the SLAS Fellowship Grant
1: in 2019? The research I proposed for the SLAS fellowship grant in 2019 focused on the development of miniaturized diagnostic tools for the rapid diagnosis of bacterial infections, specifically antibiotic-resistant bacterial infections. So the focus really was on identifying bacteria such as carbapenem-resistant E. coli, and I proposed doing this using a magnetic nanoparticle-mediated microfluidic device that could capture specific bacteria strains and then... Using different types of detection approaches, such as electrochemistry or fluorescence detection, in order to identify the bacteria's resistance profiles. Wow, sounds
0: really cool and really technical. So obviously antibiotic resistance in bacteria, it's a huge, huge topic. But how did
1: you get interested in this field in the first place? Well, this work was actually inspired by a previous project that I had worked on when I joined the lab, where I was detecting methicillin-resistant staph aureus, which is also known as MRSA or MRSA, if you've ever heard of a staph infection. So that's really where my research in antibiotic resistance started, and that's just a project I kind of fell into when I first joined the lab. And so using that approach, we were using these magnetic particles in order to capture and concentrate the bacteria, and then we used electrochemistry to actually detect the bacteria. Now, I wanted to de- extend this work beyond MRSA and try detecting more broad ranges of bacterial strains. So that's why I kind of chose to try to expand this project and work on that further to actually be able to detect, you know, not only something from a nasal swab, but maybe trying to think about urinary tract infections or sepsis and other types of bacterial infections.
0: That's really cool. And I have never heard of using these magnetic nanoparticles in this way. Can you tell me a little bit what exactly are these magnetic nanoparticles and how are
1: they used for detecting different bacteria strains? So magnetic nanoparticles, I guess the word nano suggests that they're very small. The diameter of one of these particles is about a thousand times smaller than the diameter of a human hair. So if you think about how you know, small or thin a hair is, shrink that down a thousand times, and that's the size of the diameter of these particles. Now, these particles, when you put a magnet really close to them, they can then become attracted to that magnet. So, what we can do is actually take these particles and use some chemistry in order to functionalize them or modify them In order for them to actually not only be attracted to magnets, but also be attracted to some sort of target that we're looking to identify. So whether that's a whole bacteria or we could detect proteins, DNA cells. Depending on what kind of chemistry you do on the surface of these particles, you'll be able to identify whatever target it is that you're looking for. So in my application, I was functionalizing these particles with antibodies and antibodies. What they can do is actually target bacteria on their surfaces. And so by doing that, then you can actually target the bacteria with your antibody and then use a magnet in order to attract your now tagged bacteria with these nanoparticles to a magnet. And then you can do things such as washing in order to remove any sort of, you know, if you're working with a nasal swab, there's a lot of other things in there. So you want to wash that out. And you also want to wash out non-target bacteria, other types of interferences. And that also allows you to actually concentrate down your sample. And so you can go from a very large volume to a very small volume. And that helps you detect a smaller number of bacteria because you're now concentrating them.
0: So is this similar then to other types of antibody labeling, like fluorescent antibody labeling?
1: It's a similar approach in that, you know, you're utilizing an antibody to bind to the surface of your target. Mm -hmm. We actually use a second antibody with a protein that allows for the turnover of a molecule to then detect the bacteria electrochemically. So the nanoparticle isn't actually doing any sort of detecting but rather it's doing a targeting and a concentrating, or you're basically localizing your bacteria somewhere where you want them. So then you can later tag them. You can use fluorescence. We chose to use electrochemistry. It's a very sensitive approach and it also has more simplified instrumentation than fluorescence does oftentimes. And so that was the approach that we took there, but moving forward, the projects I ended up working on, we actually ended up using fluorescence detection in a bit of a different way, actually.
0: Cool. Okay. So you essentially use the magnetic nanoparticles. They target the antibiotic resistant strains, and then you can use that to isolate them. And then you can do whatever labeling you want to do with them so you can visualize them. Exactly. Exactly. Very cool. Does this
1: technique work on viruses as well as bacteria? You could target a virus in this manner. You basically just need an antibody in order to get what it is that you need. Something to be mindful of is that viruses are much smaller than bacteria. And so you might run into challenges in labeling them, you know, the number of targets you can get per virus, for example. But in theory, it is doable. So what are the advantages of
0: using these magnetic nanoparticles to isolate the specific strain you're looking for?
1: The advantage is that you can actually so thinking about my samples that were nasal swabs, right? I had about, let's say, a thousand bacteria in a mill of solution. And so I need to have a detection limit. So I need to be able to detect as low as one bacteria or one bacterium per microliter, right? So it's a very, very small number of bacteria that we're looking to detect. So when I can take that one milliliter sample and concentrate it down to, say, 20 microliters, right? So I've now concentrated it down to a much smaller volume. I can detect a lower concentration of bacteria that was in my starting sample. So that's a really big advantage of using these magnetic particles and also being able to clean up your sample matrix, right? So if your sample, when we're talking about sample matrix, it's basically everything within your sample that is not your target. So anything that could be interfering with your signal or give you a false positive, for example, you can then wash away any of those interference because you've, you've actually held down your bacteria with your magnet, you can wash out whatever it is that could interfere, and then put it in some sort of medium or liquid that is not going to cause any background signal or mitigate any sort of background signal. So you get a kind of a cleaner sample, a concentrated sample, and you can then get some really sensitive detection.
0: And so is the idea then that you can more quickly diagnose people who
1: may have an antibiotic resistant strain in their infection? Exactly. So we want to be able to rapidly detect bacteria. The current turnaround can be around 48 hours or more. And so you want to be able to get people the right diagnosis and the right drugs in time. When we say antibiotic resistant bacteria, it doesn't mean that there are no antibiotics that are going to work against that strain. It might be the case. We have superbugs, but generally speaking, there are still antibiotics that you could employ in order to treat the infection. So being able to actually identify the correct antibiotic is ideal. And that's kind of the direction my work went into. We actually steered away from magnetic particles and went more Instead of specifically targeting bacteria, more so looking at their antibiotic resistance profiles.
0: Oh, interesting. So can you that kind of leads into one of the questions that I wanted to ask you, which is, you know, as we all know, if we've ever done scientific research, it always changes. It never goes the direction you think it's going to. So yeah, what processes did you have to adapt? What kind of changes in direction did you end up having to go over the course of this fellowship?
1: quite a few, <laughs> uh, but, but in a positive way, because the overall theme of my research didn't change, right? I was trying to detect antibiotic resistant bacteria. I was trying to do this in a relatively rapid manner on a miniaturized platform. And that is what I ended up doing. Did I go in the straight line that I had planned? No. And as you're pointing out, most research does not happen in that way. If if your research happens in a very linear fashion, it's I don't know if we can call that research necessarily (laughs) because you haven't really discovered something or done something new. So I had to pivot from using magnetic nanoparticles and using classic microfluidic methods, which I had used on prior projects, to actually using a different platform, which was developed in collaboration with Aaron Wheeler's lab at the University of Toronto. So they use digital microfluidics. And Working with a student in his lab, we actually decided to use that platform in order to do this research. So this really allowed me to expand the direction of the project. I was able to detect a wider range of bacteria. I was no longer tied to a specific surface marker or intracellular marker. I was really just looking at, okay, we have bacteria in the sample, which antibiotic would it be effective to use versus which antibiotic would be ineffective. And so we did kind of adapted a standard approach to doing these types of tests. So they're called antibiotic susceptibility testing. And so this is typically done in a 96 well plate format and takes a lot of Intervention. So you pipette into these 96 well plates, you do dilution series. And so it's not very user-friendly, but using the digital microfluidic platform, which you can actually automate and have, you know, the liquids move into different areas, mix and match, and do what you want. We were actually able to simplify the protocol steps, improve the user friendliness. We also managed to integrate the detection approach. So instead of having to use, say, a fluorescence microscope, which is bulky, expensive, we were able to use just a low cost camera and some filters in order to create a fluorescence detection platform, which ended up the whole thing was the size of a shoebox. So it takes up a very small footprints. So you can imagine that this could be used in a lower resource setting or not being done in a centralized lab. Perhaps you can do it kind of directly in a clinical setting. So that was the direction we went. And we ended up managing to detect not only E. coli, we detected Staph aureus, K pneumoniae, a bunch of different strains. And not only did we get antibiotic resistance profiles, but we also managed to get some classification. So determining whether or not we had a gram positive or gram negative bacteria or we also were able to identify e coli. So lots of different approaches there and the ability to modify this platform is really simple. You can without redesigning your chip, you could do a lot of different types of protocols. So that was really nice and we showed the versatility of that.
0: Nice. Yeah, sounds like you came out with a really useful set of protocols. So with the magnetic nanoparticles was the issue there just like that they were too specific almost for your work.
1: Right, so the specificity is challenging in that yeah, if you had some universal bacterial marker, you might be able to do some sort of detection and and those do exist, but then you have to make sure your detection you get some sort of specificity out of there. You don't want to catch necessarily everything in your sample. Now, an idea we had was to use single-stranded DNA and targeting in intracellular DNA. Of course, it's intracellular, but DNA within the bacteria. And so you could basically use different types of strands and you can detect different types of bacteria. The challenge there was actually getting the particles in the bacteria and permeabilizing them. So that showed to be quite challenging, especially given the size of the bacteria our lab had done this in cells, which are much larger, but on this smaller scale and having particles that are small enough, but also strong enough to allow us to detect the bacteria showed to be challenging. Yeah.
0: Well, that's great that you were able to kind of recognize these challenges and adapt and come up with something new and really cool and exciting.
1: Yeah. It all comes with, (laughs) it all comes with the process, right? It's, Again, as I said, it's not a linear process at all. You kind of you try things, they work, they don't work, and, and you adapt and, and you move forward. And I think sometimes we get very tied to our projects and we we really want them to work. And at some point you have to realize, you know, you've reached a dead end or or there's something you're missing and it's just not going to work. So you have to think about alternate approaches.
0: Absolutely. And sometimes I think that we don't emphasize enough how important it is to try something and then realize that it's not going to work and to make that known to people. You know, nobody wants to publish negative results that don't work out, but, you know, you got to try it and then find out what those difficulties are so that somebody else doesn't, you know, spend a whole bunch of time trying to recreate that and then realize the same thing that you already figured out.
1: I had a colleague who used to say fail fast and uh, (laughs) that's not only useful in science, but in life in general, because we can spend a lot of time on things that may not be going somewhere for whatever reason. But if you take a moment and step back and realize, okay, you know, something's got to give, then you can stay focused and get back on track. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, speaking of unforeseen things throwing a total monkey wrench in your research. How did the COVID-19 pandemic impact your research?
1: As everyone knows, (laughs) in March 2020, things kind of, you know, took a turn. So the University of Toronto shut down most of the labs at that point. I was sent home for about three months to kind of breathe. (laughs) It was a bit overwhelming at first because it all happened very abruptly. But it also gave me the time to step away from the bench and think about my research, what I was doing, why I was doing it. I got the chance to actually start working on some papers, my thesis as well, because I was getting close to the end of my degree and also plan whatever outstanding experiments I still had. So that was really helpful and in a weird way i'm grateful for it because i think often in our research we get very caught up in the day-to-day and we forget to take a minute to think and i think thinking is really important we always want to do 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 but if we don't take the time to actually thoroughly walk through what it is that we need to do we won't actually be able to execute it properly so after being home for that stretch that actually allowed me to hit the ground running when I got back into the lab. And so I returned in the summer and was able to wrap up my experiments by the winter, write up my thesis and defend in the spring. So it kind of all I kind of got a good pace once we got back into the lab and really refocus, even though there were some kind of limitations in scheduling in the lab and, you know, distancing managed to get through everything that I wanted to and 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 wrapped up and was happy with that. So it worked out well in the end.
0: That's great. And that's a great lesson too, I think that you can apply even, you know, beyond the pandemic is to always remember, you know, I feel like especially in a lab setting, sometimes there's so much pressure to feel like, yeah, you need to constantly be doing something. You need to be constantly running an experiment and to recognize when you need to take that time to step away and kind of rethink the processes, hopefully can carry that on and don't need a pandemic to force us to (laughs) take a break every once in a while and think about some things. Absolutely. (laughs) So what effect did winning the SLAS Graduate Education Fellowship grant have on your ability to conduct your PhD research?
1: I mean, the support the fellowship provided me with really gave me financial peace of mind, and it really allowed me to focus my energy you know, not only on my research, but in just other areas of my life. I think finances can be a large source of stress for graduate students, particularly because there are, you know, whether or not they have to have side jobs or other commitments in order to support themselves financially, or perhaps, you know, give up certain lifestyle choices that they would prefer to have. So actually being able to feel like I had, I was in a financially comfortable place and could focus on other aspects of my life was really helpful for me and gave me that peace of mind. One less thing to think about during, you know, such a hectic and crazy time. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So I saw, you know, we know that you are currently, you finished your PhD, you're working as a visiting professor at Harvey Mudd College, I believe. Um, Are you currently doing research or are you focusing on teaching right
1: now? So, the main focus of my job is on teaching, but I have had the chance to do research with some undergraduate students, which has been really nice. So, this past spring semester, I had two research students, and they've been doing a really great job developing new labs for the undergraduate chemistry courses that. I'm on a team we're kind of revamping. So they're working on that. I also have an additional student who's going to join my group in the summer, also helping me in the development of teaching materials. So I've really shifted my research focus to more chemistry education, curriculum development. And that's kind of the area I've been focusing on at this point in my career.
0: That's great. So what is it that, you know, draws you to education and teaching in the first place? And, you know, is this something you think you're going to be focusing on long term?
1: I hope so. I've loved teaching from I don't know since how long ago I come from a family of teachers as far as some of my grandparents and my sibling and my parents. So, like, I don't know if it's in my blood, um, but I really something that I brings me joy in teaching is you know, taking a seemingly difficult concept, a lot of times people get, they hear chemistry and they're like, ah. And anytime I tell someone I teach chemistry, they're like, either I get, I love that subject or I hated that subject, but there's never like, there's yeah. never the person who's like, oh, that's interesting. There are very strong feelings. And just being able to get the concept across to students, I think is really. It's nice to see when they get it and they're nodding, and you know, you you see that they've understood the concepts. I think that's great because that allows these students to then kind of push the field forward. If they're inspired by the, the things that they're learning, if it's actually clicking, they're kind of the future of STEM and they're going to push, you know, the field forward. So just being able to inspire all those people and teach them something that they didn't know before they entered the classroom, I think is really satisfying. And I hope to continue doing so. So what kind of projects
0: are you having your undergraduate researchers work on?
1: Currently, they're developing a new lab. So they are taking it's a little kind of outside of what I've been doing, but they use metal organic frameworks, which are basically these intricate molecules that their 3D shape allows them to have some sort of crevice. And in that crevice, you can actually trap other molecules. So these molecules can be used for filtration. They can use for, you can kind of concentrate gases. So instead of having gases under some sort of pressurized container, you can kind of trap them in these molecules and getting students to start thinking about those and how molecules get uptaken by these metal organic frameworks That's what we've been working on so far. And I'm actually looking to incorporate more of my background in biosensors in developing activities. So that's something that's kind of in the works for the fall. That's
0: awesome. I've never heard of those sorts of frameworks and I've, also, I'm one of those people. Full disclosure: who hated chemistry. So, <laughs> but that sounds really interesting. So maybe I just should have taken chemistry from you.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's it's really nice to hear that someone walks into your class and's like, I hated chemistry, but you know, it's not so bad, or even just even not so bad. I'll take it. You don't have to come out loving <laughs> it. But, you know, if it wasn't as bad as it was when you came in, but you just gotta keep it interesting, keep it light, and hopefully you know, the students end up enjoying. it. Yeah, (laughs) that's
0: terrific. So what are your long-term career goals look like?
1: I'm working towards a more permanent position in, you know, a teaching-focused chemistry role that can be at an an institution like a liberal arts college that I'm at currently. I'm also open to kind of expanding to a research-focused university, although I would like to focus my role in teaching. And if there is some sort of research aspect, keeping it kind of tied in with my teaching is, is my main goal.
0: That's awesome. Do you have like a dream university or institution that you would just love to work at?
1: I mean, if I put a plug for the university of Toronto, will they give me a visit? (laughs) Hey, it doesn't hurt to try. You never know. (laughs) I'll submit this with my job
0: application. (laughs) You always just go for it.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it would be nice to kind of come back. I I'm born and raised in, in the Toronto area. So being around, you know, family, friends and all of that would be an advantage to being at the university of Toronto or an university in the area, but I'm not opposed to you know, being in North America, I'm currently living in California, so it's not not so close to where I grew up, but it's always nice to have a new adventure and, and try out a new environment.
0: Yeah, absolutely. How does California compare to Toronto? A bit warmer, I'm sure. A lot warmer
1: <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a change of pace, I think. People always talk about the West Coast versus the East Coast, and you can kind of see the, the laid back vibes when you're near the beach. So that's been nice. And it's also been nice to kind of explore a new area and travel. There's so much to see around there. So that's been really nice for me as well, living there.
0: Awesome. So before we wrap up I was wondering do you have any advice that you would give to young PhD students who are trying to obtain
1: funding for their own research they often say you can't win the lottery if you don't buy a ticket right so it's the same thing with funding if you don't apply for you know that scholarship or that fellowship you'll never get it right so whether or not you think you're going to get the funding or not, I highly encourage people to apply. It's a really good practice to just get your proposals together or your CV, getting all those things polished. If your application is not successful, it's still a really great learning experience. You can reflect on your research, your professional development, identify your strengths, and perhaps any areas of improvements or gaps. You know, if you notice, Perhaps you're not volunteering enough or you want to explore a new area in your research. This is an opportunity for you to sit back and, and think about it, which is perhaps a theme <laughs> that, I, <laughs> that I've been uh, plugging in here. But yeah, that that would be my my advice is actually, I think the hardest part sometimes in applying for these types of fellowships is doing it. It's just like getting over this feeling that you're not good enough or you're not going to be able to get it. But again, if you don't try, you'll never know. And when in doubt, sit back and think about it.
0: Exactly. I think that's great le- advice for careers and just life in general.
1: <laughs> but Don't just think you eventually have to do. Because, because just thinking is not going to get you very far. That's a good point. We got to add that last step in there. <laughs>
0: Awesome. Uh, Well, Karine, it's been a real pleasure talking to you today. Unfortunately, that's about all the time we have, but thank you so much for joining us. And we really look forward to seeing you at future SLAS events and to see where your career takes you. Thank you so much. It's always a joy to share my experiences.